Good afternoon. Welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm your host, David Ahrens. Madison Bookbeat is WORT's focus on books about Wisconsin, as well as features on Wisconsin authors. Today, we're pleased to welcome the author of City of Newsmen, Public Lies and Professional Secrets, Catherine McGar. Catherine is a professor at the UW-Madison School of Journalism. She's also the author of The Whole Damn Deal, Robert Strauss and the Art of Politics. That sounds, that's certainly a great title. I haven't read the book, but I love the title. Uh, Catherine, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Thanks for having me, David. Sure. Uh, let me just give a setting for the book, which is Washington, D.C., um, and it's during a period that runs uh, basically from the beginning of the New Deal until the early 60s, but with a uh, most of the focus is on the immediate post-war period of the late 40s and, and 50s. And the focus is, of course, the newsmen. And that's a, a phrase that we don't hear anymore. So what's the significance of the use of this phrase uh, in terms of setting up the book and and really sort of the, the argument that you're making about the state of media at the time? When I started researching for the book, I noticed that people in this world called themselves newsmen or newspapermen, or if they worked for the New York Times, they would call themselves timesmen. And that this was just the language that they used, even though there were plenty of women journalists at this time and plenty of women journalists even in Washington, D.C. But for what I was looking at, which was primarily foreign policy reporting and national security reporting, during, after, during and after the war, the newsmen really kept um, the private doors of reporting closed, um, not just to female reporters, but also all reporters of color. And so they sort of controlled this beat by controlling access to information and access to sources um, so that for almost this entire period, there's a really monolithic group of men reporting. And it's how we get that idea that there was a Cold War consensus that the United States should be leader of the free world, even if in reality, no such consensus existed in the country. And was there, one of the questions that I had reading the book is that you mentioned the, in the beginning and sort of sort of setting the, the scene of, that this was a city of newsmen, that there were so many people involved with journalism. I think you said there's a thousand members by the 1950s, there's a thousand members of the National Press, Press Club, or, or maybe, but a thousand journalists working in D.C. Did the consensus move out from this circle, and was there a, a broader and broader and broader consensus for the Washington Bureau guy for the State Journal and the you know, Tuscaloosa News and the Sacramento Bee? Right. So some of the most interesting um, documents that I found were memos between these guys stationed in Washington in their Washington bureaus and letters and memos and telegrams back home to their editors. So one of the reporters that I looked at was named Wally Duell, mm -hmm. and he'd been a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, and there's these remarkable set of letters where he is sort of trying to promote U.S. foreign policy and support for Western Europe and anti-communism in his, you know, supposedly straight news articles. And the editor says, you know, so what if everyone goes communist? We don't really care. Um, I don't think, you know, he actually says, uh, I never did think that U.S. foreign policy ever amounted to much. 
Um, and so seeing some some of these arguments play out between the home offices and the Washington bureaus really helps you see you know what an echo chamber Washington was at that time and maybe still is. Um, and it's only foreign policy reports that are then the same across the United States because you know the the state journal, has its own politics reporter at the state house, and the arts reporting is local, and the sports reporting is local, and that's not true of the people covering the State Department, the Pentagon, and sometimes the White House. They're all in Washington, they're all working together, and they're all then sending their stories out all over the country. And they have the offices. You mentioned that there's some, you know, a few floors of an office building, and it's you know desk to desk. Um, you know, as I said, you know, the Sacramento Bee and the Dubuque Times sitting next to the State Journal who's sitting next to some other paper, you know, sort of the crosstalk becomes, you know, it's a socialization process. Right, right. The National Press Club was a really important space at this time. Um, so the National Press Club had its own building starting in the 1920s, and it's um, primarily known as a social space. It has a bar. It's a place where the men can come and get lunch. And again, only men um, yes. until the 1970s right. and only male guests until the 1970s. Um, and then in addition to the bar, there's there are also floors of offices so that, as you said, um, you know, all of these local or regional papers can can rent an office space in the National Press Building. And then you have all of these all of these different guys um, you know, and women working together in these very close quarters and they're able to discuss information um, before printing it. And very few journalists are in direct competition with each other at this mm -hmm. point. So, you know, the, the wire services would have been in competition with each other, the mm -hmm. EP and the UP, and, you know, some of the New York papers. But otherwise, there's no national news, really, um, you know, except for a couple magazines. And so they're really not in direct competition, and they're very comfortable sharing information. In the 1930s, there was even something called black sheeting, which is when a reporter would give the carbon copy of his story to another reporter at another outlet. And then that reporter would file the exact same story with his editor back home because there was no way anyone would find out. Right. And also in the 1930s, the government just really exploded. Um, and eventually, you know, the news caught up with it. Um, but there was just so much to cover that they kind of relied on each other to help them cover this huge, sprawling bureaucracy. Right. That's an interesting piece about how sort of the pre-war period, the New Deal comes in, and suddenly there are, as you say, sprouting agencies that are incredibly powerful, that have um, money to them, and they're doing innovative things. And you just have, just sort of, picture this, you know, one guy in a pork pie hat running around from agency to agency trying to figure out what it's doing and, and what this all means and trying to translate that uh, to, as I say, the folks back home. Whether one of the things that I didn't get, and I, and I guess I'm just reflecting on sort of reading the paper, you know, 40 years ago, uh, sort of the pre-Pentagon papers period, was there much of a sense of people doing exposés or doing digging and finding anonymous sources within departments and then publishing that as a, as well here's what's you know the, you mentioned the the YouTube uh, flyover and that exposé that it wasn't really a weather satellite or whatever it was actually we actually spy on people but other than that during this whole 50s period was there 
one, or was it common to do exposés where people within the bureaucracy would be whistleblowers or whatever? So, you know, there was plenty of, of good reporting um, and there was plenty of investigative reporting, but um, some of the, the sharpest or most critical reporting did not come from this set of, you know, 20 to 30 men covering foreign policy. There were a few, um, you know, famous outsiders. So I.F. Stone, mm-hmm. Izzy Stone was sort of famous for, you know, his his leftist or iconoclastic reporting. Um, and he was able to do these kinds of exposés because he did not have sources within the government. Um, he did not rely on invitations to get to go have, you know, drinks with the Secretary of State. Um, and so he was able to be more critical in print. He did most of his reporting from from documents that mm-hmm. people weren't always using. Or someone like Drew Pearson. He's he's around. He's friends you with. Talked a little bit about about Pearson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so he's you know was a famous muckraker of mm-hmm. of this period. Um, and was just constantly being sued for libel because so sometimes he had, you know, really, really great exposés. So, um, you know, it's sort of common now that we know that um, the Dulles brothers, John Foster Dulles, who was secretary of state under Eisenhower and Alan Dulles, who headed the CIA, CIA under Eisenhower and then a little bit under Kennedy. Um, you know, we know that they were involved in some of the authoritarian rightist regimes, um, you know, in South America back when they were at their firms and um you know we know how how involved they were in overthrowing certain governments mm-hmm. um and you know this was something that that Pearson had written about back in the 40s um and it actually he one of the places that his that his syndicated um column ran was the Washington Post and at the time the Washington Post publisher Eugene Meyer um who is you know K Graham's father uh, he was really upset by this. He didn't think you should be writing these really critical things about um, the Dulleses. And they had a big falling out over it. And they only made up when uh, Drew Pearson's wife, Louvie Pearson, you know, went to Eugene Meyer to the house and said, you know, Drew really wants to apologize. And they, <laughs> they, they kissed and made up. But it was hard to do that kind of really critical reporting because there was pressure, not just from publishers, as there was in this case, but also from other reporters um, you know, if you write an expose on the Secretary of State, it, you're not going to get invited to the background dinner that the reporters are putting together in some hotel, um, and you're not going to be able to get your next story. And so access to sources really depended on on not exposing um, wrongdoing or doing it really subtly. So something like the coup in Guatemala in 1950, which the CIA had something to do with, you would have had to be really sharp, savvy reader of the newspaper. And probably you would also have to already live in Washington to understand that Scotty Reston, that James B. Reston, who was New York York Times bureau chief in Washington, that he was trying to lay the blame for this coup at Alan Dulles's feet because it was just, it was so cryptic. cryptic. You know, if you wanted to start a coup in, say, Guatemala, don't talk to John Foster Dulles about it. I mean, it's, it's, um, there, there is certainly criticism and, um, there are exposés, but you know the CIA didn't want its name in print, mm-hmm. and so really frequently in the 1950s, these stories were being written. The CIA's role in certain plots was being exposed, but if you go back and try to do a search for it now in newspapers, and you're looking for the the title, you know, CIA, you're not going to find it because they did not name the agency by name, wow. and they didn't start doing that until the 1960s, and then that's when you start getting that much more critical and more straightforward 
reporting where they do talk about the CIA's misdeeds by name. So, so there was part of the consensus or the agreement is that we had no intelligence function. The CIA simply didn't exist in the minds of most Americans the way that you know people assume that it's even more powerful perhaps than it actually is. Uh, let me get back to this this sense of um, being expelled from the bubble, you know, that if I say this, then I won't be able to go to that dinner at John Forster Dulles' house or with the other 12 important people in Washington, um, and then I, I won't know what's going on. I wonder whether this is some kind of con game almost, that, you know, just a mind game that people are playing both on themselves um, that that I must keep being in the game or right. or, I, or I'll be expelled and I'll be a nobody. And John Forster Dola saying, yes, that's how we're going to play it. Um, but when people do step outside the line, whether they really are cut off, because if I'm uh, because you know people have each other as sources as well. So if I'm if I'm the St. Louis dispatch guy and I've crossed over the line and now I can't go to the next dinner, can I just then ask Scotty Reston or the guy from the Washington Post, "Hey, how was it?" You know? No, he will not tell you. He won't. Or, he, or or he won't be invited. So they would only share notes if it was with someone else they considered responsible. But I really think that these reporters had more power over that space than someone like like Dulles did, um, who was fairly unpopular among newsmen yeah. and was constantly lying to them and misleading them. It was pretty frustrating because reporters created um, this world of reporting, of background reporting, and needing to get these invitations to dinner um, in World War II. And so there are legitimate security reasons where, you know, they're not just playing mind games with each other. They're also concerned, you know, mm -hmm. a country at war. They're not getting along very well with a lot of the sources of the Pentagon, which has just been built. And someone like Admiral Ernest King, who's running the Navy, had a particularly bad relationship with newsmen. They just didn't like him and they thought he was taciturn and difficult. And these were the words they used. And so um, someone who was friends with King and also friends with reporters got a bunch of them together at his house in the suburbs of Virginia for dinner one night, and they had this you know, off-the-record conversation. And then that continued to happen throughout the rest of the war. Um, and these dinners became so important, um, they created a whole new rule of attribution for these reporters. Mm -hmm. It was called the Lindley Rule, mm -hmm. um, named after Ernest Lindley, who attended some of these dinners, who was a reporter at Newsweek. And that rule was um, you can't say that the dinner happened, you can't say where you're getting your information from, and you can't attribute the information to a particular person, but you can use that information for your own reporting. Mm -hmm. um, and there are you know, very specific cases where something would then go wrong with you know, the Navy's public relations, and they would go back to these particular guys and say, hey, can you do a positive story um, you know, on the Navy or on how well the Navy gets along with the Army, and then boom, the next day, mm -hmm. you know, on the front page of the New York Herald Tribune in a straight news story, you've got this idea where it came from, and it came from, you know, Bert Andrews, who had just been at this dinner. You mentioned that you know, there's a war going on, so everybody's got to keep tight lip and and stick together. 
whether that same sense of mission and solidarity and secrecy that was established during World War II, whether the war on communism, because we're fighting communism and and then nuclear yeah. war and yeah. everything else that, that flows from that. So I think you're exactly right on the nuclear war part. I think that that was hugely important. Um, you know, they, 1945, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, suddenly we're in a nuclear world and reporters don't want to be the cause of World War III. They don't want to be the cause of nuclear holocaust. And most of them had been alive during World War I. They saw how quickly World War II came on the heels of World War I. And they had, you know, no reason to think that World War III would be that far behind. And so they certainly are being more cautious. But one of the most interesting things I found when I was doing my research for City of Newsbin was that they actually don't talk a lot about communism. They don't talk a lot about the Cold War and anti-communism. Um, and some of them even, you know, send private notes to their readers saying, don't worry, the anti-communism thing is just a ploy that Congress is using to get funding. And what we really care about is rebuilding Western Europe and, you know, keeping the Atlantic Alliance strong. Um, and so I was actually surprised at, at how little ideology there is um, and how much um, they're, they're just being pragmatic about getting natural resources, getting raw materials from colonies and former colonies and really helping to, to prep up France and Great Britain and ourselves view of the 50s is politically is that it was a country and a foreign policy dominated by the Russian and Chinese menace, the red menace, and then all of the um, sort of inflections and influence that had in the country in terms of anti-communism here as well. And really, other than a few instances where there are issues of the newsmen being secret communists or had been communists. That that it happened in a few instances, but it really wasn't the it really didn't sort of dominate the the culture at the time. It didn't and um some of those those newsmen who did have to go and, you know, have hearings before HUAC were based in New York. And another point I try to make in the book is that Washington reporting was really unusual and really special and very different from New York and separate from New York. And they had built their own world here where their own rules um, applied. And so a lot of times when we think of of journalism of the 1950s, maybe we think of Edward Murrow or Walter Cronkite. Mm -hmm. And both of them lived in New York. Um, You know, they were sort of part of this where they were friends with people in this world. Um, You know, Murrow makes an appearance in the book because he was especially important to fostering these relationships between these guys during World War II in London. But Washington was um, a totally separate thing and um, was this group of men reporting on foreign policy was less directly affected um, by McCarthy, who you know probably just knew better than to, to go after some of these guys. Yeah. Um, so just like there are women reporters in Washington, they're just being kept outside of this particular group of foreign policy reporters. There are plenty of black reporters um, in Washington, men and women, who are also being excluded from these spaces of reporting, and especially of foreign policy reporting and national security reporting. Um, there were enough black journalists in Washington that they did form their own press club because they were not admitted to the National Press Club. The National Press Club integrated in 1955. They let in one black member out of, as you say, over a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite a so they were integrated then. One guy, they're <laughs> done. 
Um, and it was and it was really controversial. You know, it almost didn't pass. Um, so they they formed their own press club, the Capital Press Club. Um, you know, which also had its own speaker series and events. And they were just really covering, um, you know, a separate uh, part of Washington. They would, um, you know, cover the government, but not in the same way because they didn't were not given the same access to the spaces of Washington, you know, which also you know, remained segregated for a mm -hmm. long time and sort of had de facto segregation. And so even when the Washington Post is there, the editors are talking amongst themselves saying, you know, we probably should hire a black reporter. They're saying this in the 1950s. But he probably won't be very useful to us because he's not going to have access to any space. And yeah. so we maybe we should hire someone who's internal, like maybe in our library or maybe sports, but certainly not foreign policy, certainly not politics. Um, and so then this, this, this you know, re self-reinforcing uh, group of of, this, of white men who yeah. get to have a, um, a monopoly mm -hmm. of foreign policy writing. Uh, let me just interrupt here and uh, say that this is uh, Madison Bookbeat, and we're talking with uh, Catherine McGar today, who's the author of City of Newsmen, really interesting book uh, of the media culture, uh, really, of Washington in the 40s and 50s and, and its effects uh, on how we use the news uh, today. Uh, one of the things about the black press, which um, I thought was really important and interesting, was that the benefit of their exclusion, really, for them uh, and for the nation, perhaps, was that they were allowed to have a different point of view, that they were the only voices that said, well, maybe the United States is not all, you know, plum fairies and, and right. goodness out here in the post-war world, maybe there are motives in terms of the American imperial agenda and those former European colonies in Africa and Asia. Maybe that's the key to American foreign policy, and that they had they were able to express that that point of view. And they and they did, and they did do it in a more straightforward way than the white press. Even though, as I saw in my research. Uh, members, you know, white members of the press are also talking sort of behind the scenes about the imperialism. They're also talking about They're just about. writing that in their diaries. But, and so the black press compared to the white press uh, was more critical and would, you know, ultimately most most newspapers came out in support of the Marshall Plan, the, the plan for European recovery. But, you know, we're saying this needs to apply also to African nations. The war was also fought on African soil. And, um, you know, the United States really needs to to think more about what it's doing. But it was always um, subject to so much pressure. And so where some of these, you know, white reporters wouldn't have been scrutinized as much um, for their associations or for being considered too radical, black press was under constant scrutiny. Um, you know, Eisenhower's press secretary is always looking for a way to revoke Ethel Payne's press credentials. She was a reporter for the Chicago Defender. Um, and so even they were also limited in what they could say and how critical they could be um, because the government in the past um, had sort of, you know, used anti-radicalism as a cudgel to silence the black press. Um, and and yeah. that was continuing. In the well, the, the reporters had, yeah, I think you mentioned that uh, she was suspect because she worked for the CIO. And not everyone in, in the government was was thinking like this. Um, you know, when it came time to accredit reporters to go to the Bandung conference, 
um, the you know Conference of African and Asian Nations, um, which you know was only you know bringing in black reporters. Um, you know, there were a lot of people in the government saying, of course, you need to accredit these black reporters. Um, you know, they're they're ethical reporters. They're st- American. They're still on our side. There were, um, you know, certain parts of the State Department that were really um, trying to promote, um, you know, anti-segregationist policies, trying to show the rest of the world, um, you know, look how free the black population is in the United States. Um, and so there's there's always that constant tension um, within the government, too, of of how inclusive they should be. What was the effect of uh, gender segregation or the gender, you know, just the fact that this was 100% men? Um, you mentioned these clubs, the Gridiron Club, which were, you know, solidly male and sort of celebrated their their right. their maleness and their, their bonding, you know, exercises. Um, so what was the effect that we only heard from men, you know, for 30 years about the world. So I can't prove that if they had let women into these rooms, there necessarily would have been less homogenous reporting, right? Because it Mm -hmm. didn't happen. Um, At the same time, we do know that when women reporters did start coming into these um, spaces, they often could be more critical. Um, And so, you know, one of the books that I was kind of using as a model was uh, Timothy Krause's The Boys mm-hmm. on the Bus, which is, you know, about the the Nixon um, presidential campaign and all these reporters who are writing together, you know, eating together, drinking together, filing their stories in the same room, looking over each other's shoulders. And he pointed out that some of the best and most critical reporting um, on Nixon came from the women reporters because they didn't stay overnight in those hotels. They didn't go drinking with the men. Um, They were excluded. And so they were able to have a little bit of detachment. So I can't prove that also would have been the case for for my group of men, but we certainly know that a lack of diversity of of people leads to a lack of diversity of thought. Um, And so, you know, these men, not that they necessarily agreed all the time, but they were able to have these, you know, sort of trusting, chummy, clubby relationships and come to certain understandings about um, what one should or shouldn't report. What election did the boys in the bus? What, I think that, that was about? 72. The 72 election. Yeah. Well, it was sort of an expose. It was sort of a rolling, I think it was a Rolling Stone expose or something like that about, you know, sort of the press bus, the evolution of, of well, what we now, you know, is the press jet and the press plane. Right. Everything else where people cabin together for a period of, four months under bizarre circumstances and everybody sort of works out what the lead is going to be for the next day. Exactly. And I and I write in the book that, you know, Washington is just one big bus, basically. Um, you know, it's not just during a campaign that they're all living Year together. after year after year. Yeah. And they had social the relationship and wives and children yep. and everything. They belong to the same clubs. And where AP and UPI... The the what do you what do we call them the news services, how, um, how do they play into this? I mean, so many local newspapers, what we think of as local newspapers, uh, had reporters on right. the scene then. Uh, so, what was AP and UPI's role so in all this? They were really powerful, especially AP, which was bigger. Um, they were really powerful in sort of setting the news agenda for the rest of the newspapers. 
um, in a way that was sometimes then detrimental to getting the real story. So there are especially some interesting memos between reporters in Washington, the New York Times, and then the Home Office um, for the Times in New York, where the reporters in Washington would say, we had a story and we had the real story. Why did you use the AP story? Or once you got the AP story, you changed our lead and you made it incorrect. Oh. Um, and so sort of when we think of that very objective both sides journalism that sometimes, you know, doesn't isn't as fair, doesn't support the truth as well as some nuance. Um, you know, AP had had very strict rules about what they were writing, um, and and sometimes reporters were were struggling against the AP. Um, but then, of course, the AP guy was also at these at these dinners. Um, you know, on whoever was on the beat mm -hmm. at any given time. Uh, so, the so the AP reporter was part of this very small group of the insider. Exactly, and would have been sort of an elite within that group, along with the New York Times. The New York Times also had a really big part in setting the agenda for the smaller newspapers, which would sort of, you know, look, there was one guy who had worked at the Washington Post for a long time, and then at the Times, and he said when he back when he worked at the Post, they would wait and see what came out on the front page of the Times so that they could then change their later edition to have the same front page story. Um, and so you can see where we really are getting a, a sameness, again, that homogeneity mm. in the press because they're sort of all following each other's lead. And I and probably the Washington Post was not the only newspaper to do that. Exactly. Um, exactly. Others mirrored it as, as well. Yeah. well. One thing I was struck by, was it was it C.L. Salzberger or the publisher of The uh, Times? Yeah. Oh, uh, Arthur Hayes Salzberger. Arthur His nephew, the European correspondent, was Cyrus Salzberger. Oh, sorry, okay. What a major role he had in mm -hmm. setting really coverage day to day on a day to day basis. You think of a publisher as being, you know, just sort of sitting back and watching the revenues and the expenditures and and the, you know the general quality of a paper, but not sitting down and writing you yeah. know, dictates to reporters mm -hmm. saying this is the truth we're going to go by. We're all in for the Marshall Plan. And that's the way it's going to go. It was fascinating. And Sulzberger's papers are actually where I started this project because they're all at the New York Public Library. And I got interested in why, when the New York Times was usually endorsing Democrats, why they endorsed Eisenhower twice and why this was so controversial that the letters that people wrote in about the Eisenhower endorsement over Stevenson in 52 had its own separate set of filing folders mm -hmm. because they just got everyone was mad at them. Yeah. Um, and I and I discovered then all these connections between sort of the top brass at the New York Times and the military and, you know, Arthur Salzberger's fondness for the military and for Eisenhower personally. And you're right that Salzberger I you know meddled sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully in the the news writing, not just in the, the editorial writing. And he had an especially close relationship with Scotty Rustin, the Washington bureau chief and sort of diplomatic correspondent. Um, they traveled together during World War II and and really bonded at that time. And um, you know Sulzberg was kind of a father figure to Rustin. And that's not to say that Rustin always did what Sulzberger wanted. Um, and some of the best memos are Sulzberger complaining after the fact that he didn't like what Rustin had written, or he had been too unfair on Eisenhower, or he'd mm. been too critical of the United Nations, or whatever it was that happened. Um, but they still had this very close relationship 
where Sulzberger felt like he could be, you know, constantly telling reporters what they should be doing and how to do their job. And, and was there a Sulzberger who was called General Sulzberger? Uh, at General Adler. So this was a cousin. Oh. Um, of of the, in this Ox family. Um, so Adolf Ox was sort of the mod, the founder of the Modern Times. You know, he bought it in the 1890s. Um, and he had a nephew, um, Julius Ox Adler, who became general manager of the newspaper, and he sort of ran the business side. And then his son-in-law, um, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, ran the the editorial side of the paper. And so they sort of ran it together. And, and Adler, yeah, was Colonel Adler and then General Adler. And he lit was literally in, in the military until he sort of couldn't stand it anymore and wanted to go back to the Times um, and asked to be let out of his... But he continued job. to be called general. Iphigene Solzberger, who was Adolf Ox's daughter, so the woman who I guess, you know, probably should have been running the yes, time, right. right? Except that in those days, it, all, it often went to the son-in-law, mm -hmm. same with the Washington Post. Um, she was a big Stevenson supporter. And so if she'd had her way and she'd been running the paper, they would have endorsed Stevenson both times. Um, and there's interesting meetings between Sulzberger and Eisenhower, these private secret meetings at the White House. Um, and on one instance, Eisenhower says, you know, you can come on your own or we can have the wives. You know, Sulzberger tells his staff, you know, I'm not bringing my wife because she's she's pretty violently pro-Stevenson. Oh. And so I'm worried about what she'll say in front of Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, these decisions were not without controversy. There is plenty of tension going on behind the scenes. It's it's not a given that they should be endorsing Eisenhower and endorsing NATO and the Western Alliance and militarization. And yet they do. Um, they're you know, they they actually favor a universal military um, training, fairly pro-military at the New York Times at the top level in this period. During the period, certainly a critical time in terms of huge expansion of the military, a huge expansion of American foreign power. Was there dissent in local paper? You, you mentioned at some point the Chicago Tribune as being mm -hmm. sort of an outlier in terms of being consistently isolationist or sort of neo-isolationist, really. They right. weren't completely isolationist, but they really didn't support uh, the Marshall Plan and other parts of this uh, new America. How extensive was that, and how did they how did they relate to sort of the consensus group? The Chicago Tribune really was unique among this group of sort of the big, regional, powerful newspapers who had representatives in Washington. So I haven't had a chance to look at all the, the local coverage and all the editorials for all the newspapers across the nation. And I'm, I'm certain there was a lot of isolationism. There was so much isolationism at the grassroots. Um, but in Washington, they were the outlier. And, you know, I talked about those background dinners that started with Ernest King. And, you know, maybe there were eight to 10 men at any given dinner, but there were sometimes different eight to 10 men. And they cycled through, you know, around two dozen different men attending these dinners, you know, over the few years of World War II. And at no time did they ever invite the Chicago Tribune guy mm -hmm. to come to these um, <laughs> because, you know, they had they had been very vocal against Roosevelt, against the war. Um, they weren't as trustworthy and you just never knew. And and later they were included in meetings, but um, I do have this one memo of, of guys within the State Department saying, is there any way we can have this off-the-record meeting and not invite the Chicago Tribune guy? And the answer is, no, you have to invite him. Like, we don't have any really good reason that we can... Ex um, because <laughs> the second it's highest circulation in the country. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big newspaper. It's a white newspaper. Yeah. Um, and so, like, by rights, yeah. I mean, the, 
that time, um, he should be included. Um, but it was it was um, certainly unusual in being so vocally isolationist up through the Cold War. Do you think that when Trump uh, talks about the evil and lying media and its connections and ties, you know, all webbed together with the power structure, that he's he's reflecting on this sense of a coterie sitting around in tuxedos drinking martinis and that these are the people who are yeah i certainly worry that this that my book could be taken from that that writer's perspective of oh look there actually was um a cabal of people running um things and still is that did this group did this group ever dissolve this group's still um and of course you know i'm I'm trying to approach this from a a leftist perspective so um so i don't love that but um, yes, in in this um, you know time period, there was you know a group. Not that there's just this this tiny um, group. It's actually a very large group. It's pretty much the whole city is involved in making what later gets called the Washington Consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that we're going to be part of this global world. Um, so I think you know Trump is certainly right that there are certain perspectives that someone would have living in Washington that they didn't have other places, and one of those perspectives was a, just a more internationalist perspective. Um, so there are some there's some letters um, of former isolationists who, because of their experiences in World War II, realize that the United States should be more involved in other countries um, and sort of has this internationalist perspective coming out of World War II. And a lot of people had that experience. It's not just a cabal. Um, and a lot of the you know, cabal talk is, is really anti-Semitic, and it was at the time, and it is now. Um, and you know, it didn't help that, um, yes, the Sulzbergers who were running the Times were Jewish and were actively trying to distance themselves from that identity. Yes. Eugene Meyer, uh, running the Post, was Jewish um, and, and didn't have to distance himself quite as much as the Sulzbergers did. Um, but yeah, those those sort of um, pernicious conspiracy theories, you can, you can see where they're coming from and you can see where the left and the right kind of meet up on this point of... Um, you know, there there was conspiring. They they did meet. They mm-hmm. did decide. Um, you know, let's. The, Salzberger says we will print whatever the government says, as long as they'll take responsibility for it, even if we know the government is lying. And so, yeah, they yeah. they were sort of struggling with what's the act of omission, um, not just that we're saying these things that are untrue, but that we're omitting things that we know are true. Mm-hmm. What's the weight of those two acts? Right. And again, we can really understand why they are leaving some things out of the paper and why they feel a duty, you know, just as as citizens or just as citizens of the world, even not even as Americans to to prevent nuclear war. And so anytime, you know, they have the opportunity um, not to sort of inflame uh, passions, but, you know, between the Soviet Union and the United States, um, they would like to take it because, again, they don't know that World War Three isn't coming right around the corner, um, and and they sometimes feel like, well, the government might actually know best in this case, and we'll hold off on reporting this until we know more. Sense of this, you know, the secret cabal thing. It is such a miles, worlds, worlds apart of the media environment. I mean, where you had three or four newspapers, as you said, the newspapers would look to see what the morning edition of the Times had, and then they copied it. I mean, now, I mean, Tucker Carlson gets fired, and then, boom, two weeks later, he appears 
on his own show on Twitter, and any number of, of avenues for people to um, express all kinds of opinions, of course, through mm-hmm. social media. And in fact, during the time of, you know, that you're really under discussion in the book, television is just starting to really play a, a dominant, a more dominant role in the in the media lives of Americans. How did they fit into the the Washington D.C. I know there was some uh, defections from the print media into uh, the TV media. I recognize some names as later TV correspondents. So especially the radio guys got um, you know, sort of made that transition to TV because the same companies that dominated oh, mm-hmm. radio, so CBS. And NBC mm-hmm. then also kept control over television. So CBS News has its radio division. Someone like Eric Saberai is on there, and then he will make the transition to TV and still do some radio. Um, so in that sense, it's some of the same group. But television news really doesn't become an important part of Americans' lives until later mid to late 60s. Um, the the nightly news programs are only 15 minutes in this period. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's sort of just you know, reading the headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a time when Americans' media diet is primarily um, newspapers and radio. Um, and there's always tension when there's a new medium that comes to town. So there's a whole separate radio press gallery in Congress, separate from the, the periodical, you know, the print press gallery. Because the members of the print press said they're not real reporters, they're not real newspapermen, they have to have a separate gallery, and we're going to stick them over in their own radio gallery. Those mm-hmm. glamour boys of, mm-hmm. of radio and the glamour boys of TV. So okay. there was definitely glad to hear. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah exactly. So um, definitely some tension, but then some who you know made the transition from from writing, uh, you know, like Walter Cronkite had been a print reporter. Then oh. went to radio and then went to television. Um, again, he's in New York, so he's not quite as involved in this group. And he also isn't going to become sort of that household name until the 60s. You discussed the, um, this remarkable coverage of John Forster Dulles or Alan Dulles and how the Time magazine or Life magazine would just have mm-hmm. this idolizing him as, you know, truly God's gift yeah. To America, I guess it was John Forster Dulles, the Secretary yeah. of State, in saying that they said that he's possibly the greatest Secretary of State. You know, this absolutely dull corporate lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really, um, what was the, the sort of the special role of the whole Time Life? Yeah. I, so what time? one of the things that surprised me um, the most when I was doing my research was how much all of these guys, these sport policy reporters, disliked John Foster Dulles um, and disliked him largely because he was always lying to them and, you know, issuing denials um, when they printed something that they would later find out was true. Um, And so there's a lot of, you know, behind the scenes complaints between reporters and home offices about how much um, John Foster Dulles is, is misleading them. And at the same time, you know, someone back in the home office will say, well, Time Magazine said such and such, you know, positive about John Foster Dulles, as you said. And, you know, I've got this one letter where they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, the the, the loose publications, the Henry Loose publications, Time and Life, are, are in Eisenhower's pocket. 
and Claire Booth Luce is an ambassador for him and they're they're very tight and I and the other thing that surprised me was how much the reporters disliked Time magazine so everyone was reading it but it was not influential in this period um and it was ranked lowest in trustworthiness time and again mm. when they would when reporters were being not by the people not by regular readers mm. by reporters in Washington saying this is not who we trust and in fact there were a few kerfuffles where someone from time um you know spoke out of turn after a background meeting and you know wasn't abiding by those background and off the record rules so you know time was sort of down there with drew pearson in terms of trust among fellow members of the press mm-hmm. um you know they they didn't and and loose wasn't out you know loose was in in new york he's not in washington on the ground um and so yeah, Time Magazine, which loomed so large over the country, has such an insignificant part within Washington reporting circles. It's hard for people who didn't live in that period to appreciate how dominant those mm-hmm. two publications were. I, I don't know what the circulation was of Life Magazine, but it was everywhere. Everybody subscribed to Life, uh, Time, and Newsweek. They were everywhere, and, and especially, I think, for communities that, you know, only had a little newspaper with very little news, national world news, people were absolutely dependent on Time and Newsweek and looked at them as, that's the news. That's the total reflection of the world out there. Was And so that, that black and white view that we sometimes have of the Cold War period, that that certainly did exist in Time magazine. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying it's that anti-communism was a figment of everyone's imagination and it never really happened. Um, it's just that it's it's not happening on the ground in Washington among these reporters who um, have a lot more nuance in their stories than we sometimes remember. Because when we remember this period, we're often remembering Time magazine. Um, and again, it has, has much less influence. In Wisconsin, I mean, we had Cap Times, which was the one of the leading anti-McCarthy papers. And then, you know, over in Milwaukee, we had the Milwaukee Sentinel, which through the 50s, especially the part of the McCarthy period, had a regular feature, Meet Johnny Sentinel. And it was this fictitious character that outed local communists and, you know, was always on guard for the communist menace in Milwaukee. So we had, you know, and of course applauded McCarthy and everything else. So it was really kind of two worlds here, which I guess continued to exist in Wisconsin. Right. (laughs) And yeah, as you say, like not, not all newspaper, we, I think we also think that like maybe the press somehow dropped the ball on, on covering McCarthy, but there's plenty of criticism of McCarthy, um, you know, well before the, the Ed Murrow piece where he sort of takes him down on television. So yeah, lots of newspapers, apparently including the Cap Times, um, that, that call out McCarthy for what he is, fearmonger. Yeah. Uh, we're t- talking with Catherine McGar, who's the author of A Nation of Newsmen. It's a fascinating book about... The City of Newsmen. I'm so sorry. I keep calling it a City of the Thing. I should get the title right. She's correct, folks. It is called City of Newsmen. It's a better title. It is a reflection of the news world of Washington in the 50s and 60s and how it was created, of course, and really what its impact is on um, our, you know, sort of our media diet today. Let me ask you, what what are you working on now? I'm just starting a new project. 
Um, I'm sort of still looking at the foreign policy realm and how domestic opinion forms around foreign policy. And so I've just started some research into the papers of the Council on Foreign Relations and um, sort of looking at the intersection of, of think tanks and the media and, and academia. Um, but are you uncovering more of the cabal? I guess it's more. I'm really. <laughs> I'm gonna try to not um, call it a, a cabal. Um, but but yeah, looking at networks in New York, um, you know, looking at sort of tracing these social and professional networks um, that you know maybe they're not controlling foreign policy, but they certainly can control some foreign policy narratives that the American people read. It's sort of looking at those effects, right? And people moving in and out of official positions from think tanks, right. you know, sort of that migration. Exactly. Uh, that goes on. And I mean, people sort of think that it's, that this is something that's just a characteristic of, you know, the left or liberal worlds. But I, I've read recently that um, uh, the Heritage Foundation is sort of gearing up for the Republican administration to come. Right. I mean, right. they're, they're not just waiting for something silly like an election. I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger was is an example of, of one of these guys who's in and out of think tanks and in and out of academia and then, you know, gets to be secretary of state. So did you get any feedback from the media about this book? I mean, in terms of people, I assume most of the people or all of the people in the book have since passed. But other people from the sort of the Washington press corps, as it were? Um, well, the book just came out a few months ago, okay. and uh, you may know for academic books, there's sort of a, a slow, yeah. slow rollout, a slow burn. Um, so um, I've only heard from from a couple, but um, someone from the Washington Post, a political reporter, um, did did reach out uh, recently and had very nice things to say about the book. But of course, I, you know, I I wonder um, what what modern reporters make of it, and you know, I I am you know somewhat you know I'm, I'm critical. Um, of the the press in this era, but I but I also try to convey that it's, again, it's understandable. It's understandable why they behaved the way they did. Understandable because of of nuclear war, and also that they they were more critical than we sometimes give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, reporters have a lot of pressures on them and a lot of responsibility, especially when they're working in these these high profile areas. So tr- I'm trying not to be just you know blanket blanket criticism of of journalists. We've been listening to a discussion of A City of Newsmen with the author Catherine McGar, professor of journalism at UW School of Journalism. And I want to thank you very much for this really interesting hour. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks again for having me on. You've been listening to WRT's Madison Bookbeat.